Well, welcome everyone. Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness that you have displayed to each of us through this last week. We thank you that you are a God who is good and merciful, and we appreciate the provisions that you have allowed us to enjoy. Thank you so much as well for the challenge of this new week. As we begin this week, as we are gathered here, we ask that the things that we learn and are exposed to will help us in the test of life that we know we're going to be experiencing. We ask our Father that this day would be a good day because we have started it with you. We ask as well, our Heavenly Father, for our loved ones. We pray that your protection would surround them. And we ask as well, our Father, that we would be the witnesses that we ought to be and should be because we are part of the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, folks, uh, we're in James. Uh, and uh, I hope I am not overdoing anything, but let me, if I may, just wrap things up with regard to the end of chapter 2. And uh, you remember this section, chapter 2, verse 14, ask the question, uh, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And the question that is being asked is, what are you saved from? And we are suggesting that the word saved here does not mean being saved from hell. It means being saved from being unprofitable and unproductive as a born-again Christian. Because if you'll notice, he starts out by asking, what does it profit my brethren? So they're already people that have a relationship with God. So to understand this particular section, I am suggesting that he is not questioning their existence of faith, but the profitability of their faith. Is their faith profitable and useful? Is it a working faith or a worthless faith? And Obviously, what God desires in all of us who are part of the family of God is that we have a functional, active faith. So, the key to understanding this section is found in the two key verses, and that is chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, Faith, if it has no works or deeds, is dead being by itself. There's got to be a connection. Faith without works or deeds is useless. <laughs> again, <coughs> he is not questioning whether they are born again believers. He's questioning whether as believers they're functioning the way they ought to function. So, what does the word dead mean when you come to this section? I have suggested to you that it means inactive, useless, unprofitable, non-beneficial. It does not mean non-existent. And uh, there it is. All right. Got to get that in there. By the way, 
Let me, if I may, just show you one interesting passage, and you don't necessarily have to turn there unless you want to, and that is over in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, there's some very interesting stories, and uh, it's talking about uh, the prodigal son. And uh, it's interesting that when the prodigal son comes back, and he becomes part of the family that he has left. Is that my phone or, oh, I left my phone at home. <laughs> Where it belongs, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look, if you will, how the father summarizes. Verse 30. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth and harlots, wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father says to him, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Then he is referring to the son. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, was he dead physically? No. He was alive physically. But what happened? He left the whole situation and the father describes him as being dead. What? He wasn't, he wasn't part of, he wasn't active. He was, he was wasting his life. And of course, that is the emphasis, I think, that James is talking about. Now, before we, uh, before we wrap this up, if you look at James chapter 2, the end of the chapter, there are some words here that I just want to talk about briefly. And that is when you come to James chapter 2 and he is talking about having an active faith which combines works and faith together, he uses a very interesting word and that is the word justified, justified. And there are three usages of the word justified. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac? Chapter twenty or uh, chapter two, verse twenty-four: A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on: Was not Rahab justified by works when she? And then it gives the two things that she did: she accepted the spies, and then she told them how to get out of the situation. <coughs> the word justified is an interesting word because I am going to suggest to you that it has a bi-directional emphasis, a bi-directional emphasis. There is an emphasis where it is upward to God and outward to mankind. So upward to God, outward to mankind. When we look particularly at the upward to God emphasis of justification, the thing that we discover is that justification all means declared righteous before God through faith, 
or belief in Jesus Christ. When we say we are justified, we are simply saying we are as righteous as God is righteous, not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done as a result of us simply believing in Jesus Christ. You're trusting the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised. But also there is a justification before men. That is, we display a righteousness before mankind through proper behavior. And one of the things James has sought to emphasize in this section is this lower part right here. He is assuming that these people are born again believers. But he is saying to these believers, I want you to display that righteousness. And in displaying that righteousness, you are going to be justified before men. Let me illustrate it like this. Here's a man right here. How can he prove to these people that he is a born-again believer? Here's a man right here. How can he prove that he is a believer before God? Well, justification is something God does on our behalf. Justification before men is something we do as a result of our particular position. So, I'm going to suggest that justification for God before God comes through faith or belief alone. When we trust Christ, we are declared righteous before God. Nothing we can do other than just simply believe, have faith. But to be justified before men, that comes through works. That comes through behavior. Does everybody understand that particular distinction? Now, before we go on, I would like, if you don't mind, to look at a verse or two when you come to Romans chapter 3 and 4. Romans chapter 3 and 4, because here is a passage that indicates that there are probably two ways of justification. There is the upward and there is the outward. If you look closely, starting with verse 21 of chapter 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as, <coughs> being justified as a gift, justified as a gift, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, this is a little bunny trail, but this section is talking about justification. How does a person become justified? It's through faith. 
is through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And you will notice that down in verse 25, he says, as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood. Uh, I'm going to say something, and hopefully it won't be misunderstood. The word blood throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's literal blood, literal blood, all right? I'm not questioning that. But it is a figure of speech for something else. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus Christ had come to earth and just died a natural death, just one day his heart stopped beating and he dropped dead. Would that death be effective for our salvation? No. Probably not. Because it says without the shedding of blood. How's that? Because it says in Hebrews without the shedding of blood. Yeah, just said that. All right. Whenever you see the word blood, is looking back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. Because when you see the word blood, it's not a, <sighs> he just dropped dead. When there's, a sh when there's shedding of blood, it is a gruesome, violent death. You understand what I'm saying? And that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It causes a gruesome, violent death. Is there literal blood? Absolutely. But the blood is a picture of something that is so gruesome and so violent. And that's the way sin is paid for, through a gruesome, violent death. The animals were sacrificed. Did they just clunk them on the head and they dropped? No. You know what the priest did? Would anybody like to describe what the priest did? They cut their throat. They cut their throat. And the whole point is, here is an animal whose blood is shed violently so that sin can be taken care of. That's the emphasis. Now, there's literal blood but it is a figure of something much more gruesome. So he says, God is satisfied through this shedding of blood, this violent death. He goes on and he says, uh, <clears throat> when you look down at verse uh, 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of the works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, I'm going to skip down to the beginning of verse 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, has found? All right, how are we going to explain Abraham? Now, notice the two possibilities of justification here. 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So you've got these two kinds of justification. Can Abraham be justified by works before men? Yes. Can, just, can Abraham be justified by works before God? No. So what he's doing in this passage is he is demonstrating the fact that there are two different kinds of justification. In Romans, he is talking about justification before God. In James, he's talking about justification before men. Does everybody see the distinction? And the reason I am emphasizing this is remember, James is written very, very early. It is a practical book on how to live the Christian life. Romans is written 25 to 30 years later. It is theological in emphasis, and Paul is explaining how we are right before God. James is talking about how to be right before men, how to display the relationship you have before men. Does everybody see that? That is a major, major distinction that must be understood when viewing James and Romans. Now, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther. The book of Romans captivated him. And what Martin Luther did mistakenly, mistakenly, he was trying to read Romans back into James. And it wasn't working. He had, and what did he say? He said, James was an epistle of straw. In fact, James, he said, shouldn't even be in the Bible because it contradicts Romans. The whole point is they're emphasizing two different things. Two different things. Any questions? Any comments on that? I've heard that same thing said today. You, I've, I've heard that same thing said today that James should not be in there because of that conflict. Because it appears to the average reader to be talking about justification before God. Right. Yeah. And he's not. He's not. In fact, <laughs> Nowhere in this section does he talk about justification by faith. If you read through it, he says there's no such thing as justification by faith. In this section of James, it's all justification by works. In every single place, he, he says living faith will produce a justification by works. And who are, we just, who are be, be, being justified in front of? Other people. How can they know? How can they know we're born-again believers? By our conduct. By our conduct. By our conduct. Uh, now, we're going to shift, all right? Whoops, let me go back here. <clears throat> Two Old Testament examples 
Uh, Abraham, pagan from Ur. We talked about this a little bit last week. Abraham believes God way back here. He offers Isaac way back here. Did it take him 45 years to prove that he was finally a Christian? No. In fact, unfortunately, there are people who say, you will never know that you are going to get to heaven until you get there. Do you understand what I'm saying there? In other words, you never know until you have enough good works whether you're going to heaven or not. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. The book of John says that we can know absolutely that we have eternal life. But how in the world are we going to ever be able to show that to other people? We do it by our conduct, the way we behave. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Hagar the harlot, she received the spies, she sent them out. She hears and believes. In fact, if you don't mind, turn back to the book of Joshua. And let me just make reference to this because this is an interesting story. I'm looking at Joshua chapter 2 because here is the testimony of Rahab when the spies come and see her. Chapter 2, verse 1, Joshua the son of Nent sent uh, two men as spies secretly, and they go from where they are camped on the other side of the Jordan to Jericho. And, Je and Joshua says right there in chapter uh, 2, verse 1, I want you to especially look at Jericho. Check it out for us. So now when they finally get to Jericho, there is a confession of faith on the part of Rahab because they sneak in. You might say, well, why, uh, why did they go to the house of harlotry? I don't know. Because <laughs> that's where men go, I guess. Visitors. I, but notice the confession of faith. I'm looking at verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when, he, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God of heaven above and on earth beneath. There's her confession. 
she is making a confession. She says, you know what? All the things we have done here in Jericho, all the idols we have served all these years, they're false. Because look at what God has done for you. She hears, she believes, as soon as the spies come, she does something. And a couple weeks later, she does something again. Uh, so here is a situation. By the way, that's not, uh, that shouldn't say a few weeks, that should say a few hours later. Uh, so my mistake. But here's... And it's also Rahab. How's that? It's also Rahab, Rahab not Agar. Mm -hmm. At the top. You know what? <laughs> it's okay. My, uh, my proofreader is out of the country, so... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we knew who you meant. Yeah. Thank you. Would anybody like to? Uh, all right. Now I I I feel uh, I feel kind of. Uh, well, let me go on. Guess what? You're human. Yeah. Uh, I'm not supposed to be. <laughs> you know, my son, my son Jesse. Uh, I may have told you this story before, but my son Jesse, uh, when he was real young, he heard the word fallible for the first time. And uh, so he was referring to his younger sister, Amber, and they were talking about being fallible. What, what do you think the definition Jesse gave to fallible? You don't stink. So, <laughs> when, when, when he said, when we said unfallible, why? It means you don't stink. All right, well, anyway. Uh, the emphasis of this section is having a living faith. And works are the things that give you a living faith. They keep you from having a dead faith. All right, let's move on. We're, we're out of that. Hopefully all the questions. Uh, if, if you still have questions and you're totally confused, why uh, I tried to do my best. Anyway. The next section of James starts with chapter three. And the emphasis is slow to speak. The emphasis of swift to hear is that there are certain kinds of conduct that must be evident in the life of a believer. Uh, visit the orphans and widows. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Don't show favorites. And he says, being swift to hear doesn't mean to just listen. It means to listen and do. Now we have slow to speak. Slow to speak. And that, of course, is found in chapter 1, verse 19, the outline of the book. So when he says slow to speak, when we come to chapter 3, what is the emphasis of this section. I'm going to suggest that the underlying message of this section is how best to communicate wisdom. How best to communicate wisdom. Uh, look, if you will, at the first verse of chapter 3. He says in a warning statement that I do not want you to be 
teachers. I do not want you to be teachers. Don't let a lot of you, my brethren, become teachers. Why? Because we have a greater judgment. God looks at teachers in a more severe way and you might say, ah, oh, there's a double standard. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. The tendency on the part of teachers in the communication process is, well, let me ask you this. What is it that teachers do? Teach, teach. What do they teach? What do they pass on? Knowledge. 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 They communicate information. And what is James going to say about the communication of information? He's going to say that there is a good way to do it and there is a not so good way to do it. In other words, there is a dangerous way to do it and a less dangerous way to do it. I have been in ministry uh, 50 plus years. And uh, I will have to tell you that this verse haunts me. It really does. I look back at some of my old sermon notes and teaching notes and I say to myself, what? Uh, you know, we all, we're all like that. You know, there, there, is that, there is that tendency to kind of grow and develop and get a little bit further understanding. Uh, I have also known situations, as probably many of you have, where a teacher is just super eloquent. But then you find out that in the teaching process, while they are in front of people communicating information, behind the scenes, they are living a completely different lifestyle. What happens to all the information they have communicated? It's all suspect at that point. Everything they have ever said, no matter how good it is, is under suspicion. And uh, boy, oh boy, I have seen that, uh, and it is tragic. I remember years and years ago when I was going to uh, the Moody Pastors Conference, and I went there for probably a period of about 15 to 20 years, and I would go every other year. And I can remember <clears throat> almost every single time I went, I heard about another pastor or teacher that had fallen morally. And the amazing thing is, every time I heard that, all their teaching, the books they may have written, the things they have made com had 
uh, possibly communicated over the years, it was worthless. You just didn't even want to read it anymore. You didn't want to expose yourself to it anymore. Why? Because their life did not back up what they were teaching publicly. Now, why is it that in this section, James is so, so worried about communicating the right kind of wisdom? Look, if you will, at verse 13. Who among you is a wise and under, uh, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So what's he doing? What do teachers do? They communicate wisdom. They can do it verbally, but for sure, they better have a life behind it that backs up what they are saying. So look, if you will, at verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such we, as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Apparently there was a tendency on the part of new believers or believers in the New Testament church to want to get up and talk when they had opportunity. Now please realize that the church services and the church gatherings in the first century were probably quite a bit less structured than what we have today. Uh, and uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ visited Nazareth for the very first time, we have almost the shortest sermon on record that he ever preached. And if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 4, here is the way the church services, if you please, were conducted in the early church. And this is Christ, but this tradition carried on for years later. And Jesus returned to, I'm looking at chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. That's where he grows up. People knew him. I knew Jesus growing up. I saw him out there. Where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the Sabbath or entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Uh, actually, it wasn't a book. If you look in the margin, it's a scroll. He unrolls the scroll. He found the place where it was written. So he reads this section. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He rolls up the scroll. 
that is the shortest passage that he could have possibly written. And now notice his sermon. Verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Sermon's over. Uh, what was the problem with what he said? Now, this is the procedure. He walks in. Hey, he's, he's coming back. He's been visiting the synagogue as he is growing up. He's coming back. Here, give us a little exhortation. What's the problem with the passage that he preached? The people, Anybody? The people huh? knew him, but they didn't know him as Messiah. He was a carpenter to them, and that was all. And what is he saying by quoting this passage? That he's the Son of God. Uh, there's, another, there's one other thing, and I'm going to fish until I catch it, all right? Uh, there's another thing that got these people upset. If you look in Isaiah chapter 61, he ends the quotation right in the middle of the verse. And he basically says, I'm coming, I'm doing all these things, the scriptures being fulfilled right before your very eyes. And uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 61 closely, one of the things that we have in this passage is when you drop down to verse 2 to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and you don't mind putting a little dash right there, that's where he ends the quote. The next line, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's not coming yet. Now, there's very, something very interesting here, and I, all I'm trying to illustrate is that in the New Testament era, when you have a new person walking into the synagogue, you hand them the scroll and say, Give us an exhortation from the scroll. Hold the place right here. Well, don't hold it, but uh, look over in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul is on his missionary journey. And one of the things that we discover, chapter 13, verse 15, and after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying to Paul and Barnabas, brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now, here are these people, total strangers. They walk into the synagogue and they're handed the floor. Uh, I can promise you my brother would probably not turn the pulpit over to a total stranger. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that now. Our services are much more structured. 
But back then, anyone could stand up and give an exhortation. So that is the way James is dealing because he says, any one of you could stand up during a service and teach. And James says, I want to warn you. If you stand up to teach in one of these unstructured gatherings that existed back then, there's going to be a more severe judgment on you. There's going to be more strict accountability. So James warns the people, don't be too quick to stand up and talk. Now, the interesting thing James is going to say as far as the underline, how to best communicate wisdom, he basically says it is not through the use of the tongue negatively. Now, he's going to tell us about the tongue. And then he says the best way is through positive conduct. <coughs> positive conduct. And that's the section that we have. Now, here's something interesting, and I'll mention it as we, uh, as we wrap things up. He has several metaphors in which he describes the tongue. The first metaphor is what? A bridle. Uh, how many of you are familiar with horses? Uh, all right, some of you. The amazing thing about a horse is you can stick a bit in their mouth and control the whole body. That's, that's always been astounding to me. Uh, another thing is the metaphor of a boat. You can take a boat, no matter how large that boat is, and that little rudder is going to guide that boat no matter what direction the winds are going, no matter what direction the currents are going, no matter what. But then he goes on, he says, the other metaphor is a fire. Now, they had horses back then, and apparently bridles. They had boats back then, or ships, that had rudders. And they also had fires. He says down in uh, verse, uh, let's see, I'm looking at verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet boasts great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. <clears throat> what is this telling us? They had horses and bridles. They had boats. and they had fires. Uh, I find it interesting, and I, I don't want to make too much of this, but fires are not a 20th and 21st century phenomenon. <laughs> he says in this verse that these fires were great. Now. History doesn't have much information on fires, but 
How did they put fires out back then? They didn't have airplanes to drop retardant. They didn't have fire trucks. What did they depend on? The rain. They probably depended on the weather. A fire just kept burning until it burned out or there was a major weather change. Now, the tongue can be a positive force to control something big, or it can be a negative force to destroy a lot of things. And we'll look at this next week. Uh, when we think of uh, when we think of fires, I think we have all experienced even though there's not a fire right around us, the effects that a fire can have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Devastating, devastating. And the parallel is a fire is like the tongue. It can say something and destroy a lot. Boy, that's scary. And that's why he tells us, don't be too quick to talk. Don't be too quick to teach. Uh, all my life, I have been paid to talk. And uh, <clears throat> boy, that's scary. And uh, my wife says, I need to talk less and listen more. The only reason I don't listen more is I wear hearing aids so I can take them out, you know. Just. <laughs> hey, thank you, folks. We'll look at this section next week, and uh, we'll dive into it. Thank you.